this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hi, this is New Books in Popular Culture. I'm your host, Erin Lee Mock, and we're delighted to be speaking today to Robert J. Korber. He is professor and director of the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program at Trinity College. He's the author of Homosexuality in Cold War America, Resistance and the Crisis of Masculinity, and In the Name of National Security, Hitchcock, Homophobia, and the Political Construction of Gender in Postwar America. He's also co-editor of Queer Studies, an interdisciplinary reader. Today, we're excited to talk to him about his newer work, Cold War Femme. Rob, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, Sure. Um, As you mentioned, I'm the director of the Women, Gender, and Sexuality program at Trinity, and I'm most interested in now both in my teaching and in my scholarship, is film studies. So I'm kind of shifting my my interests a bit towards film studies, but still very interested in gender and sexuality studies. So how did you come to write Cold War Femme? I'd especially love to hear about it within the context of your earlier work. You know, I think of Cold War Femme as a kind of companion volume to my homosexuality in Cold War America. I think in the book, I'm discussing a lot of the same terrain. I'm very interested in the construction of homosexuality and lesbianism as un-American and how kind of central that construction was to the production of national identity in the Cold War era. But, you know, I also think that the book reflects some shifts in my thinking and in my interests in Cold War culture. I've come to believe that the linking of gays and lesbians can sometimes occlude different histories of homophobia. You know, this is something we do all the time. We always talk about gays and lesbians. But I kind of want to, in the book, I want to detach the lesbian, if you will, from, you know, gay history and reinsert her into U.S. women's history. Because I think in the context, at least, of uh, 20th century American culture, it makes a lot of sense to do that, that we can understand better the homophobic deployment of the category of the lesbian. I think my earlier work did what I was just critiquing, which is to talk about gays and lesbians and not really think about those different histories of homophobia. So with Cold War Femme, you know, I really wanted to think about the differences between um, homophobia directed at gays and homophobia directed at lesbians, and um, obviously in the Cold War era. I also become very interested in the history of sexuality And, you know, one of the things that historians have shown is that, you know, in the 20th century, there is this shift in the organization of sexuality from gender identity, gender role, to object choice, that increasingly sexual actors 
are classified according to object choice and not so much according to their gender performance. And I also have come to believe that Cold War homophobia really was crucial to that transformation, that the state embracing the new model of sexuality or the new system of sexual classification really consolidated uh, the shift or the emergence of object choice as an overriding principle of social and sexual difference. So again, one of the things I wanted to do in the book was, you know, show that, was to trace it and uh, to trace it in relation in particular to Hollywood cinema, you know, which I've always thought was a very powerful institution in American culture for regulating gender and sexual identities. But that shift, you know, the, the sort of reorganization of sexuality where the emphasis now is on object choice and not so much on gender performance created a problem of representation for, you know, Hollywood. Hollywood was Hollywood production was governed by the production code and the production code prohibited the explicit treatment of sex perversion and sex perversion, which was kind of an elastic category included what we today understand as homosexuality and lesbianism. But the studios got around the prohibition with the complicity of the production office Um, which administered the production code, got around that prohibition through sort of, there there were certain visual cues, narrative cues, and so on Hollywood films could use to, you know, mark or to code a character as gay or lesbian. And most of those cues depended on the association of homosexuality and lesbianism with gender nonconformity. So, With the shift, you know, really in the 40s and 50s to sexual classification system that emphasized object choice, you know, that became problematic for Hollywood. How do you code a character now as lesbian when object choice has displaced masculinity as the primary signifier of sexual nonconformity? And so one of the things that, you know, I'm, I really wanted to do in the book was to track that shift and to think about how Hollywood adapted or adjusted to the changing constructions of lesbianism. But also at the same time, and I think this is, you know, one of the things I'm, um, I'm always kind of interested in films, you know, their contradictions and their incoherences. And um, Hollywood continued to associate lesbianism with masculinity even as it embraced the new model. So it kind of kept in circulation the association between gender and sexual nonconformity. You know, this is one of the things that's just very interesting to me. So you know, I wanted to show the different history of homophobia affecting lesbians and also to think about Hollywood's contradictory, you know, relationship to the reorganization of sexuality that was going on at the time. It's 
both it's been shaped by that reorganization, but it's also shaping it, and it's shaping it in ways that I find interesting because it's continuing to circulate this older model or older understanding of lesbianism, even as it's embracing the new one. Well, in relation to the code, I had a question about the fact that many of the examples of, of coded lesbianism in Cold War Femme could also be read as bisexuality or sexual fluidity, sure. which right. avoids a strict definition of lesbianism. I, mean, I think that's a very good question, because I think that um, the thing about the production code is um, it had to... It had to allow for ambiguity, right? It couldn't um, explicitly state. So any representation had to be ambiguous, which is what opens up multiple readings. So some audiences would read characters as lesbian if they were familiar with the codes, which um, might include their exposure. Usually urban audiences were assumed to understand, but you're exactly right that there's an ambiguity in the representation that allows for these multiple readings. Um, and one of the things that I, I'm, you know, I want to track is the possibility of lesbian readings, lesbian construction, even as I understand I'm foreclosing these other possibilities, these, you know, more complicated possibilities. Bisexuality, this is also the era, of course, of the frigid woman. I'm thinking in particular about Marnie, who is constructed as uh, the frigid woman, but I'm also interested in thinking about her as a, a possible lesbian and the way that the movie wants to have it both ways. It wants to represent her. It wants to um, toy with the idea she might be lesbian, but at the same time, it refuses the uh, reading of her as lesbian. You begin the book by discussing Jess Stern's The Grapevine, a report on the secret world of the lesbian. How does that particular text frame what's to come in Cold War Femme? Well, that text to me is interesting because it captures what's happening with the discourse in the period. He starts out writing a book about male homosexuals and then shifts his focus to lesbians, um, partly because he thinks lesbianism is on the rise. And this was some, and you know, there were arguments that male homosexuality was on the rise too, but this was an argument that sort of emerged earlier in the century, at the beginning, in fact, of the 20th century. Sexologists were claiming that lesbianism was on the, ri- on the rise, and they saw it, um, you know, as um, an outgrowth of women's increasing demands for equality and the kind of opening up of society to women, to more opportunities, also the kind of growing acknowledgement of women as sexual subjects and so on, um, this paranoia about a spread of lesbianism begins. And so, you know, his kind of shift from the male homosexual to the lesbian, and in particular, his interest in, you know, the lesbian, the feminine woman who makes a lesbian object choice, to me, was typical in the Cold War era. I I think Cold War culture was obsessed with the feminine woman who made a lesbian object choice. Not so much the masculine woman, but the feminine woman. And, you know, his investigation, you know, in quotation marks, really kind of captured that 
um, obsession. So that's what interests me about it. That's why I wanted to frame the book with, you know, a discussion of his, his bestseller. Your whole body of work reads sexuality within the context of Cold War politics specifically. Yeah. To me, you know, the femme is a kind of, she's, she's a troubling figure because she is a feminine woman who doesn't seem to reject her femaleness. So she disturbs the binary construction of gender and sexuality. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why culture is obsessed with her. It's not only because, you know, she can supposedly pass as straight, but it's also because she is, I don't want to say a subversive figure so much as um, a problematic figure in that she seems to cross a lot of boundaries. And I think that this is one reason why she's so threatening to the culture at the time. But what is interesting is the problem the example of the sim raises for this binary construction of gender and sexuality. She is a feminine woman who, at least in the discourse, resembles the straight woman, but at the same time is also like the butch in that she's her object choice is women. So she's crossing several boundaries simultaneously. The beginning of your book deals with particular films, offers readings of particular films, and then the yeah. second half uses what might be called a, a star studies approach. What did that approach offer you? Well, it's, you know, first, I'll, I'll confess, you know, I love uh, Doris Day, and I've always been kind of intrigued by her. You know, even as a kid, I was a great fan of hers. And, you know, it started really with thinking about Doris Day and her image as this girl next door um, embodying normativity in the 1950s, but at the same time also able to claim a kind of masculinity. And I see Betty Davis and Joan Crawford as also claiming a kind of masculinity in their movies, sort of at the heyday of their careers in the late 30s and 40s, appropriating masculinity and at the same time remaining, you know, really kind of powerful models of womanhood for their female fans. But with the Cold War, you know, following World War II and the emergence of, you know, the Cold War, there is a kind of backlash against them because of the characters they played earlier. Independent women, sexual women, and so on. And the thing about Day that interests me is that she is able to, um, she's one of the few stars, I know there are others, but she's one of the few stars in the late 1950s who have similar roles, you know, career-oriented, sexually autonomous, and so on, and also coupled with a kind of masculinity. Thinking about stars and screen personas um, gave me a way of filling out my sense of Hollywood's very kind of complicated relationship to the reorganization of sexuality. The production of stars is a, you know, one sort of crucial 
aspect of Hollywood. You know, when I said earlier, Hollywood is a very powerful institution, you know, again, even in the 1950s when, you know, it's a little bit in decline, but Hollywood is a very powerful institution that has an important role in the regulation of gender and sexual identities. You know, the production of stars is a main, major component of that. And so by shifting from sort of close readings of films to thinking about stars, female stars, and female stars of a particular kind, I, I wanted to kind of fill in the picture of Hollywood and its relationship to what's happening in the culture with gender and sexuality. A lot of star studies work on stars of the 1950s actually mm-hmm. has been really engaged with the idea that that gay or bisexual or lesbian actors were forced to yeah. submerge that, but that tabloids were in, in fact investigating them and in some cases outing them. And tabloids don't play a huge role in your text in comparison, I think, to a lot of star studies texts dealing with the 50s. Can you explain whether you feel that those publications played a role in the construction of Crawford, Davis, and Day? I don't, not in the same way, say, as Rock Hudson and Troy Donahue and Elizabeth Scott, you know, and some of the other stars who were the subject of a lot of gossip. I don't think that Davis and Crawford and Day were subject to the same kind of gossip. I think that uh, the tabloids obviously are extremely important in the 50s. I think what I was much more interested in was the ambiguity in sexual illegibility because of their gender performance. You know, that was really what I wanted to capture that allowed for Day in particular to become a huge star in the 1950s, even though, as I said earlier, she was playing some of the same types of roles as Crawford and Davis, you know, at the heyday of their career. And there is this backlash against them. So in some ways, Day manages to her, you know, her persona negotiate the same, the same terrain, the same cultural terrain, while never quite crossing over, you know, I think as they put it in the book, crossing the threshold of the lesbian. So that may explain why, you know, she doesn't become the subject of a lot of tabloid gossip. She, you know, she's got that wholesome screen image. And by the 50s, you can't say that Crawford or Davis were wholesome. You know, this is, so their performance of masculinity, which is always coupled, of course, with a performance of femininity, too, their performance of masculinity can be pathologized in a way that Day's could not because she had that kind of wholesome next door girl quality, which, you know, is what the studio emphasized about her and what she herself emphasized. But I think that, you know, the question of gossip and tabloids in the 50s is a really important one because um, I think that that is a kind of aspect of the production of stars in the 50s that, you know, is crucial to understanding figures like Hudson and, and Donahue, Salminio, and I mentioned Elizabeth Scott, I'm sure there were others as well. What you say about the illegibility of Davis Crawford and Day seems to me to relate to some extent to age. 
the performance of a certain age is very important to Day's performance as a tomboy, but equally to Davis's and Crawford's performances of aging and the fact that their aging is often recorded and then read as camp. Could you talk about the relation between age and images of the lesbian? Um, In Day's case, I mean, this is one of the things that's interesting about her is that she really emerges as a big star when she's in her mid to late 30s. And in fact, you know, when she makes Pillow Talk, which is the movie that really transforms her image, glamorizes her, she is in her mid 30s, which makes it hard to see her in the movie as a kind of Cosmo girl. You know, I think sometimes there's, um, I think some work has, has linked her character to this new figure who's emerging at about the same time, the female counterpart of The Bachelor. But the problem is that Day is actually older in the film. So she has been in her career longer. It's, I think, clear from her you know, apartment. She's financially stable and so on. I think that in the case of you know, Crawford and Day, I think that the camp, aspect of their personas helps to kind of contain them. My reading of Davis is that, you know, the camp element is directly related to an acting style that seems outmoded in the 50s. I think you can say the same thing about Crawford because, you know, she continues to play career women in the 50s, the same kind of woman female character she played early in her career. But the difference is, is that, you know, in the 50s, there's an emphasis on domesticity and not, you know, on career. So she seems out of place culturally. So there's that, that sort of lag. But, you know, it, and I hadn't really thought about this, but maybe, you know, the thing about Day is that all of these movies are comedies. You know, and this is, that I think that, you know, genre might be more important here than, or at least an important element to her persona. She's never really coded as a lesbian. She's in comedy. She's not in, whereas, you know, Crawford and Davis have a long history of um, melodramas, women's films, and so on. I'm so glad that you mentioned genre because one of the things that I found fascinating about the book is that you engage with these melodramas, which are typical considerations of the era, and then you end the book with the discussion of a horror film. How do you see genre as shifting the ways that these femme roles are portrayed? Yeah, I think that that's also a really good question. It's a really good question. Um, I think there's a way of, I, you know, I end the, the book with a, a very brief, you know, reading of The Haunting. Um, and I think that The Haunting, which is a horror movie, and also, you know, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which I talk about in the chapter on Davis as well. But I think that, you know, both of those movies, while their horror movies might also be women's movies as well, right? Women's films in some kind of interesting, complicated way, just as Marnie might also be. There might be 
we might be able to, there might be ways of talking about all of those films as also women's films. But the, the difference between Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and The Haunting is, is that, you know, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is a horror movie that also is quite campy. Whereas The Haunting, you know, it would be very hard, I think, to read it as camp. And there, the femme is uncontainable. So I think there, the, the shift in genre is also a shift away from a certain kind of representation of the lesbian that seeks to kind of contain her. Whereas in The Haunting, which I think is also seeking to contain the femme in the you know, form of the Julie Harris character can't do it except by killing her off. So the horror there, I mentioned earlier, the threat the femme poses to the binary construction of gender, I think in The Haunting is fully realized. You know, I think that this is what the movie is on some level cannot contain. And... Uh, in the other movies, I think, you know, the other movies that I'm looking at, you could argue, and I think I'm, I tried to point out the contradictions in those movies that suggest alternative readings from the, you know, ones that would want to show how the feminine woman who makes a lesbian object choice is contained, but always seeping through the containment. I think that The Haunting, as a horror movie, is very different because uh, because of its engagement with the supernatural. And as I point out in the reading, there is that slippage from the unnatural to the supernatural, which I think is very significant because it's suggesting something very scary is going on that cannot be resolved socially. Continuing with the genre discussion, you make a really fascinating argument about film noir. The very presence of a femme turns films that appear to be dramas into film noir. And you discuss this with regard to Mildred Pierce and implicitly with regard to All About Eve. Could you say a little bit more about how that takes place? One of the things that interested me about Mildred Pierce is and, you know, people have long commented on the way that it combines, you know, film noir and the woman's film, right? I mean, that this is, um, it's, a, it's a hybrid text and so on. But one of the things that I found, I find interesting about that movie is, is how the lesbian subtext or incest subtext gets displaced onto, you know, gets sort of surfaces through film noir. The novel, you know, was unlike any others Kane had written, it was not a murder mystery. There's a sadistic relationship between mother and daughter, but, you know, no murder. But the movie's kind of use of film noir enables it to engage the issue of incest um, in kind of interesting ways. And I think that in both the case of All About Eve and Mildred Pierce, the femme fatale, part of her sexual allure is a lesbian allure. That's what makes those films interesting to me, is is how the feminine woman, her femininity is sexually alluring in a kind of lesbian address. And diegetically, I'm not even, there's always that possibility with the audience, 
but I'm but within the film itself. So you know you had Crawford or Mildred, and you have Davis or Margot attracted to this feminine object choice. Another thing that's interesting about your selection of films is that you do deal with Hitchcock after yes. having written an entire book on right. his work. Right. I was hoping you could tell us the things that you came to read in those texts that had not been there for you before in the yeah. process of writing Cold War Femme. Right. You know, one thing to say is that we mentioned earlier how I think the linking of gays and lesbians can include different histories of homophobia. I was certainly thinking about myself and my earlier work. It was certainly true of my earlier work that, you know, I just sort of assumed a kind of parallel. I could talk about gays and lesbians in terms of the witch hunts of the 1950s, but my focus was almost always on gay men. So one of the things I've always regretted not talking about Marnie in the context of the earlier book, the book on Hitchcock in the name of national security. Also, Marnie is understood as a failed Hitchcock movie, um, and the explanation is usually something about mode of production. You know, it's an old-fashioned film at a moment when Hollywood is undergoing a huge transition, and Hitchcock's not really adapting to it. So he's using backdrop, rear screen projection instead of shooting, you know, outdoors and so on. You know, the painted backdrop, for example, Marnie's mother's house in Baltimore. And some people have attempted to explain his use of those techniques in terms of um, his desire to create a kind of psychological space for Marnie, a kind of expressionistic filmmaking that reproduces her subjective state and so on. But what interests me about that film, and I do see it, I guess, as a kind of failed film, is how is, but I want to kind of locate that in its use of this older model of lesbianism, an older discourse of lesbianism, even as the movie is acknowledging the new model. You know, that's the contradiction. So Marnie is a feminine woman who is terrified of intimacy with men, you know, can't really be a lesbian. We can explain, you know, the movie tries to explain her um, aversion to men in terms of a traumatic childhood experience and so on. There's a kind of an old outmoded discourse of lesbianism operating in the movie. Then she can be reclaimed for the institutions of heterosexuality. You know, the thing about that movie is the ending, which I think is like a lot of Hitchcock movies. The ending is very ambiguous and it opens up the possibility for an not a resolution, right, of the issues the movie raises about Marnie. And, you know, that's what sort of I wanted to come back to. To me, it's a great example of the persistence of the older model of lesbianism and Hitchcock, I'm sorry, Hollywood's continuing to circulate that model. I talk about Marnie in relation to Rebecca, another important Hitchcock film, because I think the same director... (laughs) at two different sort of historical moments and with two different discourses of perverse female desire available. So the earlier one, Rebecca, 
female homosexuality, the later one, Marnie, you know, the mother-daughter relationship is so crucial to making sense of the character's uh, sexuality. Juxtaposing, contrasting, or discussing together, putting into dialogue those two movies would, you know, allowed me to pinpoint the shift in discourse I was interested in tracking in the book. So, same director, some of the same themes um, explored at two different historical moments reflecting two different ideologies. Well, the great thing is that you have the experience of writing about Hitchcock and then the missing pieces you're able to come back to and you're able to reread. And I'm wondering, since no book can include everything, what are the films, what are the stars that didn't appear in <laughs> Cold War Femme that you wish desperately had been part of it? Um, well, that's a really good question. Um, I, you know, I could have written a lot more about The Haunting because that's a, um, a movie I love. I think it's a very powerful movie. Um, but, you know, the problem I sort of encountered in writing the book was not every movie with a lesbian in it, you know, in the 1950s can be understood as a Cold War movie. So I'm looking for a very particular construction uh, of a female character and also star as well. So, you know, if we put aside the question of, Cold War culture, it would be easier to answer because I'm kind of fascinated. So I mentioned Day and her ability to appropriate masculinity, um, her taking on roles similar to, even as I recognize they're quite different from the kinds of roles that Davis and Crawford had played earlier in their careers. Um, but a, a, an actress like Jane Wyman is very interesting to me. I'm thinking in particular, you know, the melodramas she made with Cirque. It's not that she appropriates masculinity, but those movies and her per persona become attached to, I think, a desire for more. You know, women, middle-class white women desiring more. You know, that this is wanting more than the culture at that historical moment is offering. So she would have been, you know, another, another possibility. But at the same time, you know, uh, I would not want to, I think that there's a lot of, um, I think there is a, a, a lot of, I think you can read those movies as critiques of, a certain cultural formation. I'm not sure that I would identify that cultural formation as Cold War. And so I really wanted to sort of stick with cultural formation, the Cold War cultural formation, and that kind of limited my selection. To depart a little bit from the text itself, you've written about the future for lesbian and gay studies and yeah. or queer studies. And you also, of course, were the co-editor of Queer Studies and Interdisciplinary Reader. What do you see now? 
well, over 10 years a, later as the well, future for lesbian and gay studies or queer studies? And also, how do you see your text as fitting into that broader shift and future? And that, that's another very good question. I think when I started uh, Cold War Sam, you know, one of the reasons why I, so I mentioned I wanted to focus on the, the figure of the lesbian because I think that my earlier work had kind of included the history of homophobia, the lesbian, um, directed at the lesbian. But there also wasn't a lot of work being done on queer femininity. You know, I'm thinking the classic work, Judith Halberstam's female masculinity. Um, queer, at that particular moment, had become attached to a kind of gender crossing. And, you know, one of the things that I am interested in is understanding the femme as a queer figure, even though her femininity, you know, her gender performance can't be understood as a gender crossing. And I know that there, obviously, there was work being done on uh, femme femininity, but, but that's one of the things that really interested me, was thinking about um, the femme as a queer figure, not sort of overshadowed by the butch, right? Um, the butch as the kind of heroic figure because, you know, her lesbianism was so visible. You know, I'm thinking of, of some of the earlier work done on lesbian communities. And then, you know, the other thing that I was interested in was early on in queer studies, it was very important to disarticulate gender and sexuality and, you know, anatomical sex. But I think, you know, as I was working on Cold War Sam, I became aware of, you know, the importance. I just don't think that, you know, um, in sort of everyday practice, we can separate gender, sexuality, and sex. You know, that they have this kind of intimate relation. And I'm very interested in how certain kinds of femininity are read sexually. They may not necessarily be read as heterosexual. And so, you know, what are the implications of that? And can we understand that in queer terms? And I think we can, you know, and that, that to me is very, very important. I think that there's a lot more work that needs to be done on female femininity, maybe male masculinity, as examples of, of queer crossings, you know, um, of queerness. And also, on the relationship between gender and sexuality, really sort of thinking about the, you know, so deeply, it's just, it's very hard to disarticulate the two. You know, we do it heuristically, but in sort of, again, as I said, everyday life, you know, how we actually live our gender and sexual identities, I think it's actually impossible to disarticulate them. Well, that's fascinating. I don't know if this will relate, but what is your next project? And tell us as much as you're willing about that. Well, it's all very um, tentative and preliminary, but um, I have started work on a book about the negotiation of sexual modernity in um, the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies of the 1930s. I've become much more interested in, you know, sort of um, film, but also in understanding Hollywood's, you know, relationship. I want to kind of make sense of Hollywood's relationship um, 
to you know, American sexual culture in the 20th century. I think that, you know, a lot has been written about, you know, Hollywood's role in sexual modernity, you know, Hollywood licensing women as sexual subjects and so on. But I think that the role was much more complicated. And so one of the things that I'm hoping to do by looking at the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers musicals is to um, deepen... Um, our understanding of that relationship, Hollywood's relationship to sexual modernity. That's a departure for you as well in terms of the period, because you have by and large worked on the Cold War era. What have you found in shifting to a more golden age of Hollywood as opposed to (laughs) Hollywood in decline? Right. Um, that's one of the reasons why I'm, inter- I'm interested in it. The thing about the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers musicals is that they are made at a very kind of crucial moment during the Depression. Um, they're very, very popular. And, you know, I'm, I want to try to make sense of, um, of their popularity, why the movies resonated at that particular moment. You know, I'm not happy with the explanations that they provided escapist entertainment. So I want to sort of think about the way in which um, they embodied, they were not the only stars, obviously, in that period, um, the way that they embodied a kind of cosmopolitanism, a kind of gender and sexual modernity that resonated with audiences. And, um, you know, that's, that's really what I want to kind of focus on. I think that in some sense, you know, affirmed sexual modernity without without making audiences uncomfortable about some of their associations, some of their negative associations with sexual modernity. That, you know, and that's very much a 30s Hollywood moment. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Rob. I've really appreciated having the time to talk over Cold War Femme, and I encourage all of our listeners to look at it. It's Cold War Femme, Lesbianism, National Identity, and Hollywood Cinema by Robert J. Corver, and it's published by Duke University Press. Thank you. 